So glad you're here uh, today to celebrate Christmas and as we focus on the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the innkeeper's son. I didn't even know the innkeeper had a son. In fact, if you were listening to the scripture read, if you were listening very carefully, if you watched the video very carefully, what was the innkeeper's name? Now, we're going to see the answer to that in Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7, which is our passage t today. Um, I'm going to get back to this. But as I begin tonight, um, there's a different time. A man born in 1889, and his name was Charlie Chaplin. He had a film career that spanned um, uh, 64 years, from 1913 to 1977. Uh, he was a comedy actor, a filmmaker, a composer. He was a pioneer of the silent movie era, you know, back when I was a kid. Like many famous people, Charlie's popularity spawned look-alike contests all over the country. Contestants attempted to dress up like Charlie in his most famous character, The Tramp. Um, even a young actor back in those days named Bob Hope entered a, a contest in Cleveland, Ohio, and he won. On one unique occasion, Chaplin himself entered a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest in San Francisco in a theater, and guess what? Charlie Chaplin didn't even make the finals in the Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest, and no one recognized him. You know, that's the way it was with the Son of God. He came, and he wasn't recognized. There was the real Son of God, just like there was the real Charlie Chaplin in San Francisco, and they didn't get it. Jesus came, and a lot of people didn't get it. He, he was just so ordinary, and he, he was just an ordinary baby. Jesus didn't come to be in a look-alike contest, did he? Jesus came to save people from their sins. You know, even today, Jesus is still not recognized, is he? Because he's not what people expect. He's not what people really want. He doesn't meet their expectations. If they have a, an opportunity to say what they want in God... Jesus often doesn't fit that image. Today we look back at Luke 2 and acknowledge the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The time of um, Jesus' birth is highlighted in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now we don't know the actual date, and one of the reasons we don't know the actual date is because our modern calendar, we say the year is 2021, is superimposed on a couple of ancient calendars, and it's a pretty complicated uh, problem to try to figure out what was the actual date. And so some scholars come up with around 4 BC. We just don't know for sure what the date, and that's confusing, isn't it, to think Jesus was born in 4 BC before Christ, you know? The time is in verse 1. Um, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Well, when was it? Well, 
Luke says it was in those days, those days right before the birth of Jesus, the days that followed God sending his angel to speak to Mary and his angel to speak to Joseph and let them know what was coming. And then the who? Caesar Augustus. Who is this guy? He is the most powerful human on planet Earth. The Roman emperor who ruled the Roman Empire from 29 B.C. to 14 A.D., 45 years. His given name was Octavius or Octavian, but he embraced the name Caesar, which became a title for emperor, and he loved that. But he wanted to add to that. He, he had a relative named Julius Caesar. Julius was his name, but he didn't want to go by Octavian. He added the title Augustus, Caesar Augustus, because that makes him even more important. Um, this title Augustus referred to his majesty, his uh, supreme dignity, and it was really a designation for deity. He wanted to be a god. He wanted to be viewed as God, the god of the Roman Empire. Well, what did he do? Well, he ordered this census of the entire Roman world because he needed to count his people. He wanted to know, it was kind of a status thing, how many people were under his rule. But he also wanted to know because he had a plan because he needed to raise funds for his, to support his army and his navy and his lifestyle. And so he would call for a census. They would find out how many people are out there, and they would look at their budget. How much money do we need? Well, how much money should we tax these people? And so that was what the census was, was all about. He was going to take a census of the entire Roman world. Why? as I mentioned, to expand his tax base to support his military. More troops and equipment were always needed, and taxes were always needed to support uh, the emperor's lifestyle back home. In verse 2, Luke provides some additional context here. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Just in case there was a question about when this census was or which census it was, uh, Luke gives this, you know, Luke loves this detail. I'm a kind of a Luke guy myself. He likes the facts because the facts really help uh, pinpoint what is happening or where it happened or when it happened because it actually happened. And so this census was while Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria. It was the first sentence. Census? I'll try to say it. In verse 3, uh, we see part of the genius of the Roman rule in the first century. It was by acknowledging the customs of the culture where they ruled. And so in this case, the Romans permitted the Jewish people to register in their hometowns. It was a hometown designated as one of their ancestors where they would have to go for special things. And that's what was used for this census, verse 3. And everyone went to their own town to register. So in the land of Israel, it meant going to the town where you had a special ancestor and for 
Joseph and Mary, it's going to be the ancestor is David. David, the great king. In verse 4, we see this place, and we know the story, and we know the place, and it's a place where they will register for the census. We see in verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David. Now, that's Luke. He just he wants all of that information in there for us. The town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. And so we meet Joseph now for the first time in Luke 2. And we, we learned about him in Matthew. Remember uh, ch chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. And he was the one pledged to be married to Mary. And what is it that he did here? Well, he went up from Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. That deserves a map, I think. Okay, so on the map, you can see Nazareth, I hope, up in Galilee. Galilee is a province. And so as I look at the map, that's north. And then if you come down south, you see Jerusalem. And then just a few miles away, four, five, or six miles away is Bethlehem. So that's where Joseph and Mary have to register. I'm sorry I didn't do a dotted line on the map, but they have to go south, okay? You know how far that is? 98 miles, with or without a donkey. There's no mention of the donkey. They must have walked. So it says that Joseph went up. Now, he's in Nazareth, and he went up to Bethlehem. Now, Gee, that seems like it's a little bit backwards because if you go up, you go, you go up north and you go down south. But in Israel, going up means headed toward Jerusalem because it's located on Mount Zion. And it's a higher level. And it's a higher spiritual plane as well because that's where the temple of God is. It's in Jerusalem. And so people go up. And even to Bethlehem, Luke described Joseph is going up to uh, Bethlehem, the town of David. And uh, this town is in Judea. That's a province. What is Judea? Prov province where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are located. But there's a distinction sometimes. Well, have, have you heard of Judea? Yes. Have you heard of Judah? Well, yeah. There's the land of Judah and there's Judea. What's the difference? Well, Judea is the Roman name given for their territory, their province that they ruled, and they had other territories, so it was a little bit larger than the land of Judah, but it includes Judah. And why did they do all this? Because they belonged to the house and line of David. Now we go to the people in verses 5 through 7, and we already know who they are. So Luke now connects Joseph with Mary. Verse 5, he... Joseph went there, Bethlehem, to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So we met Mary back in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. God had sent an angel to tell Mary about his plans with her life, that God had selected Mary to be the mother of the Son of the Most High God, the promised Messiah. And even though Mary was not married yet, and she was still a virgin, the Holy Spirit would conceive 
a child within her who would be a son, and his name was to be Jesus. And then there was, and, and, the, the, Holy, and then the angel also said that he's going to be great, and that he would be the son of the Most High God, that he would be a king, and he would rule on David's throne forever. He would be an eternal king with an eternal kingdom. Now, I don't know if, if you were Mary, what you would have thought about all of that. That would have been a bit overwhelming, trying to take that in. What does this mean? What are the implications here? And then there's Joseph, and we saw him in Matthew 1. And God's, God also sent an angel to, to Joseph to prepare him. How is he going to take all of this? You know, um, Mary has an unplanned pregnancy. He didn't see that coming. They're pledged to be married, but they aren't married, and they haven't been together yet. And she is pregnant. And so God wants to give Joseph, wants to settle him down a bit and give him some assurance about the, what's really happening. So God told Joseph to embrace these circumstances, take Mary as his pregnant wife, and that this, this child was not conceived in adultery, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this child would be a savior. That's what they've been waiting for. He is the one. He will be the Savior and save people from their sins. And this child will be God with us. And then there's verse 6. While they were, while they were there, that is Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. It was the time and the place that God had picked. It was always his plan, and God had orchestrated a decree through the emperor of Rome to move people all over the Roman Empire, which included two people. God did this for two people to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Augustus Caesar thought it was his idea, but it was really God's idea. Caesar Augustus didn't know Mary or Joseph, and he didn't know that they would go to Bethlehem, and I'm sure he didn't really care. But God decreed it, and that's the way it happened. Just so Joseph and Mary would move 98 miles up to Bethlehem. Now, you think about that. How great would it be the parents of Jesus that God would have selected you? But God didn't say it would be easy. You know, God could have just transported Mary and Joseph supernaturally down to Bethlehem if he wanted to, but he didn't. You know, and she's pretty pregnant, and it wasn't easy. And God didn't make it easy for his people, for his servants, even those who walked closely with him. I think there's pretty significant application for us about sometimes we just expect if I'm a good person I'm going to have a good life right yeah, I don't see that in the scriptures there are plenty of promises of God's care and his love and his joy and his hope and his provision but not that I'm not going to have difficulty 
Last in verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and that indicates there were other children. He didn't need to mention firstborn. It was just her son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And she wrapped him in strips of cloths for, for, for warmth and security. She, she placed him in an unusual baby crib, a feeding trough for animals, a manger. And, you know, Jesus was born in this really humble setting to, to be one of us. So we would be totally clear that he was one of us. And his humble circumstances, his humble beginning. It's just the opposite of the trappings of a king back in Rome named Caesar Augustus. This is how baby Jesus entered our world. Enter the most high son of God into the universe, into the life of humanity. So why was Jesus laid in, in a manger? Well, Luke tells us there was no room for them in the inn or there was no guest room available for them. Now, we don't know if Mary and Joseph actually went to an inn of the first century from the word that's used here. They could have. It, it could include uh, an inn where you pay and have a space. Um, we don't know if they really met an innkeeper. And we certainly don't know his name if they did. The lodgings could have referred to a guest room in a relative's house. The lodgings could have referred to a cave. We don't know if they were inside or outside. We just know that's where the animals were. And Jesus was placed in a manger. There just wasn't enough room for him in the rest of Bethlehem society. So his birth shows his humble beginning and the background of his parents of low economic resources, just ordinary people with an extraordinary God. Now, when you think about the significance of the birth of Jesus, this was really good news. And we see that in verses 8 through 20 where... Um, the angel announces to the shepherds, good news. The shepherds are told the baby will be a shepherd. The good news ties Christmas with Easter. The purpose of Christmas is to meet the one who would be the Savior. And the purpose of Easter is to know how he accomplished that and be offered the invitation the good news has fulfilled many prophecies. Isaiah 7, 14, the child would be born to a virgin. God gave that information in the 8th century before Christ. In the 7th century before Christ, he said this child would be born in Bethlehem. In the 10th century before Christ, he said this child would be a descendant of David, and Jesus was the son of David, and that's why it was so important that Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, and that this, this child would be a king, a great king, and, and he would 
he would rule on David's throne forever. And then there's Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, again in the 8th century, and Isaiah brings this prophecy, says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, to us a child is born to Mary, to the nation Israel, the people of Israel, to the family of Joseph and Mary, and given by God. A son is given, the son of God, the son of the most high God was given by his father. And that's Christmas right there in Isaiah 9, 6. All of the rest of it refers to his coming again. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now we can call Jesus those titles. He's not recognized with those titles all over the world. Of the greatness of his government, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. We long for justice, don't we? It's coming. It's coming. From that time on forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is going to be totally a God thing. The birth of Jesus was a God thing. It was at the right time, Galatians 4, 4, but when the, the set time, the set time that God had made it fully come, God sent his son, and he would be born of a woman, Mary, born under the law. We don't think about that, but 39 books in the Old Testament under the law of Moses, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and Jesus came to set us free from that and give us a new opportunity and a new covenant and a new life. Born under the law to redeem people, to offer salvation. It was just the right time. It's just the way God planned it. And if you wanted to take another hour, you could see how the timing was so perfect for the first century. And God would offer salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Christmas is an amazing expression of God's love. You know, the most famous verse in the Bible, and pretty much everybody here knows it, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God so loved you that he sent his son for you that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God makes this offer to every person. It is always standing. It's for whoever. The good news is pretty simple. We are imperfect people. We have failed God's standards. Failing God's standards is simply called sin because we aren't perfect. The consequences that result from our failure before God is eternal death. And this is just reality. Whether it feels popular or not. Eternal death. Jesus called this hell. It's a place separated from God where there will be eternal suffering. But the good news is that Jesus came to this earth in the first century 
And he resolved the sin penalties that we all faced. He dealt with death for us so that we would not have to experience that death, that separation from God for eternity. And he paid it by giving his perfect life for us an exchange, his death paid for all sin, for all time, for everyone. Because his life is infinitely valuable, because he is the son of the most high God. And that penalty is paid for, and that's good news. One of the, one of the problems that we face as people is often we just don't have room for Jesus. And I think that's true sometimes of Christ followers as well as people who don't know Christ yet. I think Christ followers may know that they have Christ in them, but have they given him the room? Have they given him space? Have they given him influence in their lives? Or are there areas that they just hold back and keep him away from? And if you're not yet a Christ follower, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, one of the questions is, do you have room for Jesus? Would you be able to embrace who Jesus is and what he's done for you? By faith. Jesus died for you, paid for your sin penalty personally, he knows everything about each one of us. He knows our sin, our secrets, and he paid for them all. And he invites us to come to him by believing. And it's very easy to place your faith in Christ, but you have to want to first. And you can place your faith in Christ by, by a prayer that's simple. It's just admitting that we are sinners. It's trusting that Jesus died for you. Welcoming him into your life. It can be that simple. So I just want to close our time right now in prayer. And uh, I am going to go through a prayer. And I, I just, if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ before, I would just like to give you that opportunity if that's something you'd like to do. Just to make room for Jesus. And trust him for what he's done for you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Christmas story that we are reminded of this afternoon. Thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you took the trouble to enter into our world personally through Jesus and that he became a man. Thank you that he lived the perfect life. Thank you that he paid for the penalty of sin. Thank you now, Father, that the sin penalty of everyone in this room is paid for and that you offer forgiveness to every person in this room. Many have already experienced that forgiveness. 
And maybe there are some here who haven't yet placed their faith in Christ. And so, if that's you, can you just admit before God right now, say, God, and you can just silently and privately just admit, God, I'm, I know I've sinned. I know I've failed you. And right now, I just want to thank you that you sent Jesus. Thank you that he died for me. And right now, I just trust him to pay for my sin penalty. And I want to embrace Jesus into my life. I want to make room for him so that he can come into my life and guide me and help me to be the person that you want me to be. Thank you for sending Jesus. Now, if you just, everyone, please just keep your heads bowed. But if you prayed that prayer with me, would you just slip up your hand so I could see it? If you prayed with me, just slip up your hand. Okay. Anyone else? Okay, you can put your hands down. Thank you, God, for those who have um, prayed with me to indicate they're placing their faith in Jesus. And I, I pray that they will truly sense forgiveness from you and sense and have assurance that they do have eternal life. Thank you for loving us all. And then, God, I pray for those of us who um, have already committed to following Jesus, and sometimes we don't do it well. Show us where we need to make more space for Jesus, to make room for him, a part of our lives that needs to be opened up, that we need to be honest about, and if there's sin, that we need to confess it. Help us to yield to the Lordship of Jesus. I pray this in his powerful name. Amen.